Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat shalom. If all you knew about the exodus from Egypt was what you learned in Hebrew school or what you say at the Passover Seder, then you would not be entirely wrong. But then again, you wouldn't be entirely right either. From one generation to the next, we tell the story, a story that reaches its triumphal denouement in this week's Torah reading, Beshalach. A new pharaoh arose in Egypt who neither knew Joseph nor took kindly to the Hebrews living in his midst. Not only did Pharaoh decree that the Hebrews be enslaved, but he decreed that every male Israelite be thrown into the Nile. In chapter 2, we're introduced to Moses, a Hebrew boy raised in the house of Pharaoh, who, upon seeing the bitter afflictions of his kinsmen, takes a stand thus proving to have the requisite character and courage to lead his people. At the burning bush, God summons Moses to step up to the calling of the hour and to go together with his brother Aaron before Pharaoh, which is exactly what he does. Let my people go, declares Moses. But Pharaoh, with his hardened heart, digs in. God, thank God, has Israel's back, and here come the plagues. Blood, frogs, lice, plague after plague, ten in total, until finally, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh's will finally breaks, and Moses takes flight with his people. With the sea in front of them, and Pharaoh's chariots closing in behind, the fate of Israel hangs in the balance. According to the rabbis of old, it was a young boy, Nachshon, who stepped courageously into the water, his faith prompting the sea to split. This morning is Shabbat Shirah, the Sabbath of song, because as such, we read on this day the triumphant song sung by Moses as the Israelites crossed over to dry land and freedom, redeemed from Egypt. It's a good story. Maybe the best story of all. The showdown between Moses and Pharaoh, a combination of machismo, moxie, and matzah. Power politics, plagues, and yes, miracles. This morning, I want to tell you a different story, or at least a different version of the same story, a version that we don't tell at Passover, a version that I was reminded of as I was listening to a lecture this week by Dr. Tamar Kadari of Jerusalem's Schechter Institute of Jewish Studies. This story begins with the following Talmudic comment. Bishar nashim tzidkaniyot shehayu be'oto hador nigalu Yisrael mimitraim. By the merit of the righteous women of that generation, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. In this focus, in this version, our focus, as indicated by the Talmudic passage, is not on the men, but on the women 
of that generation, that it was due to their courage, their character, their vision, their heroism that we were redeemed. So who were these women? Well, let's start at the very beginning. With all of the Hebrew women of childbearing age, Pharaoh's decree had been issued. Every son that has been born shall be cast into the Nile. The men, according to the rabbis, following the lead of Amram, a figure to whom we'll return, divorced their wives. Better, they thought, to not bring life into this world at all than risk it being taken away by Pharaoh's cruel edict. Miriam courageously confronted her father Amram in his hopelessness. Your decision, father, she said, is more cruel than that of Pharaoh's. For while Pharaoh's decree was against future males, yours is against males and females. While Pharaoh's decree may result in cutting off a future generation, your decision cuts off the future entirely. Amram embraces the wisdom and the hope of his daughter and reunites with his beloved Yochebet, as do all the Hebrew families, giving life not only to Moses, but an entire generation that otherwise would not have been brought into existence. One cannot underestimate the substance and the symbolism behind the insistence of the Hebrew women to give life to the next generation. According to the Midrash, when the men returned from their daily labors, they were so exhausted, they were so overcome with despair, that they resigned themselves that theirs would be the last generation. It was the women who insisted, hope against hope, that tomorrow could bring a better day. They had hope and they had faith. And while I'm going to keep this sermon PG rated, the rabbis explain that the women also had their feminine wiles and they took out their mirrors, complimenting each other, supporting each other, and doing whatever needed to be done to bring life into this world. Each child born into a backdrop of death and despair, each child a symbol of hope and resilience, of light and darkness, of steadfast belief in an as yet unrealized future. So laudable was the faith of Yochebet and the Israelite women that those mirrors that they used to make themselves beautiful would be used in the construction of God's tabernacle itself. For all the faith of the Hebrew women, the wickedness of Pharaoh's decree remained, directing our attention to two women in particular, the Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Pua. While some understand the label Hebrew midwives to refer to Egyptian women who tended to the Israelite women, and others understand the label to refer to midwives who themselves were Hebrew, all agree that these two women possessed a moral courage that transcended national identity. On a practical level, it was the midwives who, in refusing to carry out Pharaoh's decree, saved the Israelites' babies Moses presumably included. On a deeper level, I think that the story of the midwives is put front and center much in the same way, and follow my reasoning, that as one walks into the Yad Vashem Memorial in Jerusalem, the first thing one encounters is not the horrors wrought by the Nazis, but the Garden of the Righteous, the monument honoring all those Gentiles who saved Jewish lives at great risk to themselves. Both the garden and the midwives remind us that as human beings, we always have moral agency. Choice always exists. 
the defense of I was just following orders is never a defense. And in the words of Martin Luther King, an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. We know what we're going to see. We know what's about to happen, a horror made possible not only by the actions of the perpetrators, but by the inaction of those who stood by indifferently. Not so, says the midwives. We can, even at great personal cost, remind ourselves and those around us that we are all capable of making independent moral choices when it's popular to do so, and perhaps especially when it's not. Notably, the Talmudic text doesn't say that the redemption came by way of the Israelite women of that generation, but the women of that generation, language meant to include both the Israelite and the non-Israelite women, not just the midwives who, as noted, might have been Egyptian, but the most prominent non-Israelite woman of that generation, the daughter of Pharaoh What do we know about the daughter of Pharaoh? Not much, other than the fact that she was bathing in the Nile that day when she eyed the baby in the bulrushes, whom she only knew, presumably due to his circumcision, that he was a Hebrew. Traditionally, we read her decision to rear him and raise him as a lovely act of compassion and kindness, which it was. But it was the late Jonathan Sachs who pointed out that far more was at stake in this scene in the Nile. Imagine, if you will, Sachs writes, that instead of it saying Pharaoh's daughter, the text read Stalin's daughter or Hitler's daughter. Again, the rabbis of the Midrash are well aware of the charge dynamic at hand, painting a scene whereby Pharaoh's daughter's handmaidens caution her, explaining that it's one thing for an Egyptian to disobey Pharaoh's orders, but a risk of an entirely different order for her to so flagrantly violate her father's decree. Nevertheless, not only does she save the child, but she raises a child, and for her courage, the rabbis note, she is rewarded three times over. First, it's the Pharaoh's daughter, the adoptive mother, not the biological parents who get to name Moses, Moses. Second, she herself, receives the name Batya, meaning daughter of God. So praiseworthy was her strength of spirit that finally she was rewarded with the rarest honor we have for Jew or Gentile, admission into paradise itself. Yochebet, Shifra, Pua, Batya, and of course, Moses' Midianite wife, Zipporah, who in an enigmatic and sermon-worthy scene not only casts her lot with her Hebrew husband and his people, but takes it upon herself to circumcise their son, saving both his life and the Jewish future. But no discussion of the righteous women of the Exodus generation would be complete without focusing on the great prophetess herself, Miriam. As noted, when we were first introduced to Miriam as a young girl, she asserted her voice in the face of her father's decree. It was Miriam, we know, when her despairing mother, Yochebet, sent her son down the Nile, accompanied her brother until his safety was assured. It was a slave girl, Miriam, who mustered the courage to address Pharaoh's royal daughter. Miriam's voice is a voice of courage. Miriam's voice is a voice of hope. 
Miriam's voice, most of all, is a voice of song. It was not just Moses who sang at the sea. It was Miriam. Sing to the Lord who has triumphed gloriously, not just her voice, but her spirit itself. The rabbis note the textual curiosity that unlike Moses when he sang, Miriam had a timbrel in hand when she sang. Miriam understood that even as the plagues came, even as the Israelites fled without even time for the bread to rise, a brighter day awaited, a time for joy and song and dance would come. And when that moment came, somebody better have a timbrel ready. It was Miriam who picked up that timbrel. It was Miriam who believed that even when hope is frail, there can be miracles. It was Miriam who head first, fearlessly, danced at the sea, leading the Israelites to redemption. By the merit of the righteous women of that generation, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. The story we know of the Exodus isn't wrong. I like a good miracle story as much as the next person. But if we don't elevate and celebrate and seek to emulate the this-worldly heroism of the heroines of the Exodus story, then not only do we miss the real drama at hand, but we miss out on the role that each one of us is called on to play in our own lives. We are, thank God, not living in the circumstances of our ancestors, but opportunities for quiet and not-so-quiet heroism abound. We may, if we so choose, as did Yochebet before us, work towards a future beyond the horizon of our present. We can, like the midwives, take a moral stand, even when doing so comes at cost and sacrifice. We should, as did the daughter of Pharaoh, know that whether we are born to poverty or privilege, extending compassion is our obligation to the cries of a diverse humanity. And we must, as did the prophetess Miriam herself, leverage the power of our voices for love, for compassion, for activism, for hope, and for song, like timbrels lying on the sea floor, there are miracles within all of our reach. On this Shabbat Shira, this Sabbath of song, may we find our voices and join the chorus of the righteous women by which our people were redeemed. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, Hallelujah.